Today's gospel ends with one of the most memorable lines in Matthew's gospel, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Not surprisingly, there is a cynical take on this verse that offers a cruel twist to these oft-quoted words. Wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there will be a sermon and a collection. We don't pass the basket here, uh, and so I'm afraid that makes a sermon, or as we call them, a homily, inevitable. But um, one out of two is probably not that bad odds. St. Matthew did not pull this famous formula out of the blue. There is a parallel saying in the rabbinic commentaries of, called the Mishnah, Wherever two or three gather together to study Torah, the law, there Shekinah, there the glory of God is among them. On the lips of the Lord Jesus, those words undergo a profound, if not unsettling, transformation. This itinerant rabbi from Galilee is saying that he is both the personal embodiment of the Torah and is the glory of the God of Israel all in his person. And while this probably does not shock us, it would have been unheard of for a Jew to make this claim. When Judas the Galilean led a revolt against the Romans in the year 6 over taxes, mind you, uh, he claimed that he was the Messiah, but what he did not claim was that he was Israel's God. St. Matthew was a Jewish Christian, probably a scribe, someone trained in the knowledge of the Torah. He would have been able to read between the lines of this statement and understand the claim the Lord was making for himself. And he would have known that this claim went far beyond the traditional notion of the Messiah. Jesus was saying that he was no mere man, but the living God in human flesh. Did Matthew's hand shake just a little when he wrote down those lines for the first time in his gospel? Those words give an insight into Jesus' own self-understanding, but they also give an important insight into the dynamics of life in any human community. Notice he did not say, wherever someone accepts me into his or her heart as their personal Lord and Savior, I am there. Anyone who has ever read Genesis 2 knows that one is the loneliest number. All human community, when formed around faith in Christ, is an extension of and a participation in the life of the Holy Trinity because God's own life, the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is communitarian life. This is why God can say in Genesis, it is not good for the man to be alone. And if we are created in God's divine image, then we can only find our fullest expression among others. And we can take that one step further, if you like, and we'll take it one step further even if you don't. We are never more fully ourselves than when we are with others. But I've suggested this is always tempting to give Jesus' words a cynical turn. Whenever two, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, stress and conflict will be among them. The problem with this cynicism is that it all too readily reflects the way things actually are. This is the story of civilization. It's the story of history and politics. And sadly, it's the story of the church. 
So if human life is not possible except with a community of others, it's also true that human life is not possible without bruised egos, injured feelings, and unmet because frequently unspoken needs that make tempers flare and resentments smolder. This is not unlike the life that many of us experience in this city. The very things that make people want to live in a place like Chicago also make it tense, frustrating, and sometimes violent. Uh, keep in mind that, according to Genesis, the founder of the first city was a guy named Cain. He's more famous as a fratricide, and that tells you everything you need to know about the Bible's take on life or urban life. Today's passage from Matthew is not about how to avoid tension and disputes that arise in a human community or in a family or in a country or in the world. It is about how to heal them once they have erupted to the surface and threaten to destroy community life. The obvious answer, of course, is learning how to forgive, learning how to let go, learning how to get on with life. And for some of us, that is a long and difficult learning curve. For the professionally resentful, that is a learning curve that stretches on into eternity, and that is the definition of hell. For the Lord Jesus, forgiveness is not simply a matter of willpower, negotiated relationships, or social skills, or even the power of positive thinking. It is a matter of virtue more precisely, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. They're not earned, they're not learned, they are given as a gift from God who is love in community. And we all receive that gift the day we were baptized. This city, and beyond it the country and the planet, is filled with millions of stories of disappointment, hurt, violence, and suffering. And those stories are repeated day after day in numbing sameness. You can watch it all on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, read about it in the papers. How do we, who claim Christ as our Lord, explain our presence in the midst of all of this? Not as social workers, we are not political activists, nor are we do-gooders, but we are a community of conscience living fully the true meaning of human life with others in the Trinitarian communion. Amen.